The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're watching Rob Reiner's 1989 romantic comedy, When Harry Met Sally. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the film, we will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen When Harry Met Sally, go away, watch it now and come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. Things have come to a pretty pass. Our romance is growing flat. Romantic comedy has proved a rich seam of material for Hollywood almost since the very start of the medium. From early silent movies such as Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. through to the screwball romantic comedies of the 40s and 50s like our very own Andy Goulding's all-time favourite film, Some Like It Hot. You say either. Romantic comedy is so ubiquitous, it's even earned its own abbreviation, the rom-com. But by the 80s, the genre was perhaps looking a little tired. Then, in 1989, director Rob Reiner, fresh from a run of hits including This Is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me and The Princess Bride, decided to try his hand at rom-com with When Harry Met Sally. Sally, this is Harry Burns. Harry, this is Sally Albright. Nice to meet you. Inspired by his own return to life as a single man after the breakup of his marriage, Reiner teamed up with screenwriter Nora Ephron to tell the story of college graduates Harry Burns and Sally Albright, who first meet when they share a drive from Chicago to New York, along the way discussing their differing ideas about sex and relationships. Ephron based the characters of Harry and Sally loosely on Reiner and herself, conducting interviews with Reiner and other members of the production team in order to collect material for the script, which posed the questions, can men and women ever just be friends. What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. You only think you do. How do you know? Because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. The part of Harry was originally offered to actor and filmmaker Albert Brooks, who turned it down because he thought it was too reminiscent of Woody Allen. Brooks, incidentally, also turned down lead roles in Big and Pretty Woman, so perhaps not the best eye for a hit. The part was then offered to Reiner's friend, comedian Billy Crystal, who ended up improvising some of the movie's most famous lines. But I would be proud to partake of your pecan pie. The casting of Sally proved a little more difficult, with Reiner considering Susan Day, Elizabeth Perkins, Elizabeth McGovern and Molly Ringwald for the part, before eventually settling on Meg Ryan. Call off the dogs, the hunt is over. Upon its release, and despite finding itself up against Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, and Tim Burton's Batman in cinemas, When Harry Met Sally was an immediate hit, giving the waning rom-com genre a shot in the arm and winning Efron an Oscar nomination for her screenplay. Roger Ebert called Reiner one of Hollywood's very best directors of comedy and praised the chemistry between Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. However, the New Yorker's Karen James had reservations calling it an often funny but amazingly hollow film. You know, I hate that kind of remark. It sounds like a compliment, but really it's an insult. So, 
Nearly three decades on, with gender politics ever-changing and some of the themes introduced in the movie having since been retrodden by umpteen other movies and TV shows, are the spoiler team still in love with Harry Met Sally? Our love is here to stay Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at some one-liners in movies and considering the romantic expectations rom-coms can create. But first, joining me around the microphones are a woman that understands that laughter yoga is not just people laughing at me when I'm dressed in lycra. <laughs> it's Rachel Burnett. Hello. Hello. And a man that is very far into compiling this list of top 100 number one singles. But so far, you haven't had to shut up at your face, have you? <laughs> hey? The people go on... The people, oh, sorry, Andy Goulding. I missed Hello. Before we start waffling on again about your... Your list here, but, but uh, people go on about that about it beating Ultravox to number one. But it wasn't. What was it? Vienna wasn't Vienna, it? You know what I think yeah. like, it's not all that, is it? No, but it's better than shut up at your face. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, I think it's got a place. It's got a place it's, in history. Got, More people place. bought it. Are you telling me that? Are you seriously telling me that people can be put to some kind of vote and get things wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Know, let's put that to the right, shall we? Good. Yeah, I, I can see why you're here. So, uh, rom com, rom com, rom com, rom com. Rachel, do you like a good rom com? I don't generally, actually, but I like this one. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, rom-coms do my head in a little bit. <laughs> it's that chick flick thing, and which seems to be a little bit, mm. you know, interchangeable with rom-com. And that annoys me slightly. I would say which, this is rom-com, not chick flick. Well, this is the thing, though. It has now become when rom-coms are slash chick flicks. Mm. Whereas now, then, back then, when I met Sally, absolutely, it is your definitive rom-com for me. And it's not a chick flick. It's not a Suckfest total chick flick. It is, it is for everybody. And that's why it's so fantastic and why it's so successful and why it works and works and works is because it is for both genders and it tells both sides of the story. And you don't get that anymore. Rom-coms are chick flicks. They are mostly for girls. Or they're very girly. And I don't like girly. I'd forgotten about the phrase chick flick. Um, I hadn't, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about it. I don't like it. Okay. As a phrase. I know this isn't, this isn't good radio, me thinking about how I feel about two words, but... <laughs> can you, can you no, express no, no, bear those with me, bear with me. Soon, No, 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 we're, we're, we're going to push on this. I'm going I'm, I'm to push, push you on this. And so some people, some people don't like dead air. No. I don't, I don't mind. Oh. See? You have to interrupt, don't you? Andy, get me out of this radio call. <laughs> Uh, Do you, you like a bit of contrived slush? <laughs> See? Uh, 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 That's what I mean. Uh, well, I think, I think we've been doing this spoiler thing for long enough now that uh, we've got a bit bolder in our uh, expressing our opinion. So I'm going to start with perhaps the boldest statement I've made on this show ever. Uh, I love you, Paul. Oh. <laughs> uh, let's, leave, let's leave it there. Pretty <laughs> short. Well, I've got more. All right. <laughs> I think you're a great host, uh, and I, I love the way you brought this team together. And I think we're a wonderful little family here now. But I think, <laughs> aside from all that, yeah, I think you're a, you're a man of, of real passion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're a man of moral righteousness, and a genuinely good man, which is such a, a rare there's, thing. There's in, something yeah, coming. In keyword, gen, keyword there being genuine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rachel, I don't think I need to tell you how much I love you. Oh, here we Known go. Each other <laughs> eight years haven't we yeah uh, but i can't imagine my life without you and that's a comparatively short time but it's a bit like a, a resignation i don't know <laughs> uh, and 
I think in in a in what can be a quite a frosty world, you're a, a radiator of, of joy and kindness. Right. And and Johnny behind the glass, don't don't think that will protect you from our love. <laughs> uh, I think you're a, a genius producer, and you've been a pleasure to work with. But it's been a great pleasure to to get to know you. I think you're a, a gentleman in the truest sense and that you're literally a, a gentle man. And I oh. think gentleness is a very underrated quality in, in what can be a very fierce world. Something's uh, coming. Hang on, Rage Pashmo's tissue. I've gone. I've gone. I mean all this, all that sincerely. And uh, it wasn't difficult for me to say. It might have been difficult to listen to. Uh, but I think our, our listeners out there will enjoy hearing things said sincerely. And genuine warmth and love is something that an audience generally reacts to. So what the hell is wrong with Hollywood these days that they can't <laughs> put it up there on the screen? I think the romantic comedy has the potential to be one of our greatest genres. I think it allows us to explore these romantic impulses and really get under the skin of of romance and the psychology of it through a sort of lens of light-hearted accessibility. And I think it's created some really superb and incisive films, things like Annie Hall, uh, which is I think is probably the best romantic comedy ever made, and uh, a great film called An Unmarried Woman, which is a little seen but really, really good film. And, of course, When Harry Met Sally, which I think is one of the, the cornerstones of this genre. <laughs> so we got there in the end. So there we go. No, no, we feuded uh, that because which, we didn't know which... Well, no, I kind of knew which way I was going. I was getting worried. <laughs> um, I think the problem for me is that the, the target audience for practically all cinema now seems to have shifted towards... Everything seems to be aimed sort of exclusively at young males and this kind of, like this cynical sort of response that re- rejects real warmth and, and things like that. And as a result, any level of sophistication in engaging with romance on the screen, to use a suitably crass analogy, I think, has completely gone down the crapper. <laughs> uh, and I think this, this was once... This was, <laughs> uh, it was once... <laughs> Uh, shall I leave it there? What we need, if Danny, ba- if Danny Baker, the legendary Danny Baker, was producing this radio program, Johnny, and this is take nothing away from you, there would be a theme tune. You know that da, 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 <laughs> theme tune going underneath this. <laughs> well, just, it's just to say, one, this was once like a, an adult genre. It's it not in the way that they say, it's like, they say before really crass sitcoms, this features adult humour, but it's not. It's really like cheap sex jokes and this used to be an, an adult genre and these films were about sex and they were about love and romance in a way that you could engage with as an adult and understand and see something of yourself up there on the screen and I think romantic comedy now just means sex jokes really ill-defined set pieces which don't fit into the framework that they've built and then a little bit of kissing at the end which is completely unearned and there's no depth to the characters and there's no basis for the situations and there's no development there and I think that when Harry Met Sally is just such a it's such a perfect template for it and it's it's such a joy to watch for me I, I sit and watch it and I, I I have a good time, but I come away with it psychologically enriched and feeling and feeling good and happy, but feeling that that there was it wasn't just emptiness on the screen there. It's it's just a, a good for the soul, this film, I think. 
I'm going to leave it there because I, I sense that I've been going on for a long time. But uh. that, that that my friend is is when you talk about us gathering this team together. That's why you're on board. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Honestly, there'll there'll be histories made. There'll be stories made. That students in this very university <laughs> will be coming back to that speech <laughs> in years to come. I mean, this is. It. I mean, this is Lincoln University is based and founded on media, and people scoff at media degrees. Don't they? Yeah. Quite, well, no, quite wrongly. <laughs> quite wrongly. But I think you, you, you deserve one. There, you should be an honorary doctor at this university <laughs> because of that speech alone. Absolutely. Totally agree. Flipping. I can't wait to So, you know, so we're not sure then, right? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> you see, it's funny because I used to own this on VHS years ago. Years ago. And <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and... I don't know why. When we, when we, it's always the same. We sit around, don't we? We have a meeting about watching watching these films, and I always go, yeah, yeah, sounds great, yeah, yeah. And they get around to watching it, and see, it depends what mood I'm in, or where I am, or what I'm doing. And I watched No Country for Old Men again, which is a film I don't like. I don't like the film, and I watched it again when I should have been watching this. <laughs> and my wife, my wife would even said, look, you got you got to watch that before you uh, go, go for spoil at the end of the week. And um, I'll set it up. I'll put it on the the whatever TV package we've got. I'll put it on for you now. I said, no, it's all right. I'll find something. I'll find. It's all right. I'm not in the mood for that. <laughs> Anyway, a couple of days later, I watched this. And I thought, well, I am so, I'm, I'm saying what everyone knows in the room now. I'm such a plum sometimes. <laughs> I mean, really, I enjoyed this from the second it started yeah. to the second it ended. And I understood what I... I don't think I only, must have only watched it once or twice before. I think I probably even had a poster of it. I don't know. Because there used to be a video shop at the end of our street. There we go. That ages is on. And they, they had... There were two attractions. Two attractions of the... Um, uh, the video shop to a teenage boy. Number one, um, a pastry girl worked behind the counter. Okay, which you know, I, obviously, I'm an enlightened male these days. But a teenage boy. Oh, 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 oh. Can I have Indiana Jones, please? <laughs> that kind. Of, you get the idea. And number two was was uh, just the, the the posters. You could buy the posters and even the little cardboard cutout things, uh, and even the sometimes the big display stands. But you had to have your name down, you know, for a long time in advance. Those you have to be well on the ball, and I never was. So I probably ended up with something like When Harry Met Sally because no one else probably wanted the poster. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, just oh, mm. let's get one thing out of the way and straight away when these two are sat in the car and they are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the younger selves. Uh, Rachel, you're a wig expert. I'm, I, as we've said before, an Oscar-winning ex- ex- wig expert, which, you know, you know I know. They, they, you've worked Tenuous. on films where Oscars are in the... Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Which we, we, concede. In our eyes, we realise makes you an Oscar winner. <laughs> Without doubt. The wigs were terrible, weren't they? There wasn't a wig on her. What? There wasn't a wig on her. You are... Really? Nope. Her hair was terrible, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> and it was actually styled by the same woman that used to do Farrah Fawcett's. <laughs> waves in Charlie's <laughs> Angels so okay well in which case Billy Crystal's wig was yeah. a st- okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't suit them did it really no. it didn't make them look very good no but I mean let's face it, we, we, it I feel like Craig Revel Horwood on Strictly Come Dancing <laughs> when you know someone's done like a 10 performance and he's saying that you know oh, you, one of your fleckles was off or something <laughs> like that you know I, I, I'm really picking holes in, in something here which you know but we need to we need to be careful not to well no Hey, it's the end of the se- end of the season. What the <laughs> Let's have a look. We're, at we're having a party here. Um, another note that I've made, where I'm trying to be, is uh, the old couples in 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 it. Uh, if I'm being really picky, I could have lived without it. I really like that. Mm. I like them too, but it wouldn't have made it a lesser film without them. No, that's true. I that's think true. It, it, they didn't add anything to it. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were necessary, but I liked it. 
It made um, it, it made for a nice ending, I suppose. It it, it punctuated the ending yeah. when when uh, Harry and Sally sat down. True. I think it's also it shows this is this is a film about love and about mm. romance. So it's it underlines that theme, which is yeah. missing in so much that followed this. And the idea that there isn't just one way to get to, to marriage. Yeah, There's yeah, so sure. many different ways of getting to marriage. And I love that the first one is like I saw her and I went. I'm going to marry that girl. And you think, is that really real? Does that really happen? But it really was real. That really was a, a genuine story. Well, they, they were all, st- didn't, didn't Nora Ephron, mm. or was it Rob Reiner who, who interviewed? It was, Nora. it was Nora. She interviewed members of the crew and then mm. They, mm. they took those stories and then they got actors to portray yeah. them. But they yeah. are really derived from yeah. actual interviews. And yeah. Which we all had to look up on some kind of database service, didn't we? Because I, actually, <laughs> I, I, I mean, you didn't know that, did you? I mean, you, I, I thought they were real people until, um, I, until I looked at yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think when I first saw it, I, I believed they were real people. Yeah, I, think I think they think do I very good naturalistic mm. acting mm. jobs, don't they? Those they do seem, I don't know whether they're, well, they're obviously not in love, are they? They're acting. But there's a lovely one where um, the gentleman's telling the story and the lady's just kind of looking at him. And then right then she just sort of, just sort of taps his arm. Mm, yeah. And it's so natural. And I just thought, really, is that acting? Because that's really <laughs> lovely. There's some beautiful performances just in those little snippets. Yeah. Really nice. Well, there are. But I mean, the, the two leads just oh, turn out to be astonishing. Where to phenomenal. go first? I mean, oh, right, here goes Meg Ryan. Wow. <laughs> to, to see her laugh and to, to see Billy Crystal make her laugh. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I, I know you, you talk very openly, Andy, and it's, it's, it's an inspiring thing about the way you talk about your wife, because, you know, I'm a boy boys don't talk like that. <laughs> but actually it's one of the things I, I you know I, I, I love most about my wife is making a laugh you know if I, if I make a laugh it's a wonderful thing to see and you feel you know you feel good yeah. and warm about it and to see the way that Harry makes Sally laugh and the, just to see Meg Ryan laugh is just a gorgeous sight isn't it yeah she's she's luminous she's she's just the most beautiful thing in the film and she becomes more beautiful when they're together because mm. her yeah. eyes sparkle and she she smiles and laughs seemingly naturally I don't know I think there was a lot of laughs off the set as well and I think they genuinely did have a lot of spark and chemistry between them there's um, a lovely scene in the museum where they've decided we are going to talk like this <laughs> <laughs> and I love it it's so brilliant but there's this fantastic bit where he's saying um, something about I'd be proud to partake of your pecan pie <laughs> and um, and she she genuinely looks to the side and she's looking at Rob like Am, am I meant to repeat this? And it looks like she's just going, oh, there's lots of people in the museum. I'm embarrassed. But she's genuinely looking at Rob Reiner like, really, I'm repeating this? But it's it's genuine. There's this real fun that they're having with each other. And you can't you can't create that out of nothing. Yeah. There's genuine yeah. chemistry there. I think she's she was like the crucial role for casting mm. as well. I mean, we went through the the actresses they tried, and you really need to get Sally right because yeah. I think they they said a lot of the time when they were working on this, the script started to veer too much towards Harry, and it needs to be Harry and Sally, and Meg Ryan just she's so kind of captivating, isn't she? Mm. She's a She's beautiful, but in a in a kind of uh, not in like this kind of n- absolute knockout way where you're kind of in awe of it. She's she seems like a woman you could just meet in the street. It's not like movie star, but she's she's really she's got so much appeal. I think that comes as much from a portrayal as it does from the way she looks. Mm, definitely, I must admit, as a female watching rom-coms often you you're watching the woman and you're going oh that's why she's getting all the love because she's so incredible and you can't relate at all but with meg ryan oh she's stunning don't get me wrong and i would love to look like that but you could be best friends with the woman yeah you know you say oh i can hang around with you 
you're ace, you're a bit quirky, you're a bit off the wall. And she's a bit nuts the way she's um, <laughs> checking out those tomatoes in the um, grocery shop. She's looking at every inch of it. She's a little bit nuts. And I really like that. I love that she's not this perfect really well-balanced, sorted-out woman who's really successful or whatever, or, or is a magazine editor or whatever. She is like <laughs> the rest of us. And she's not great at love, and she has been hurt, and she's hasn't decided on anything, and I just think she's great. She's so relatable. The trouble is, I think, once Meg Ryan did this role, it was hard to accept her in, in other roles. She mm. inhabited this so much that she tended to get cast in these kind of roles, didn't she? Yeah. And, I mean, space, she, she's a... She's a bit different in something like inner space. Yeah. But it's hard to accept. I think recently uh, I heard uh, Mark Kermode reviewing a film where she was she playing like an airline pilot or helicopter, something. Like. It was a helicopter, helicopter pilot. pilot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, saying that, that he, he, he struggled to accept her in that role. I mm. think that, that was a lot of critics had said that. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it was a bit of a, a curse as well that she, she did so well in this film. But. Yeah, probably. It's hard to imagine her being nasty. Yeah. At all. Um, I think you know similar role really, and you've got mail, and it's Nora Ephron yeah, again. Yeah, and and she was like Sally Albright owning a bookshop. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a similar character again. I suppose if you cast Meg, that's what you want. Yeah, well, Sleepers in Seattle, Nora yeah, Ephron again, thing. wasn't it? And yeah, yeah. Which obviously you know made her a household name, but yeah, it sort of makes you wonder: would she have wanted to? I'm personally glad she did it, but yeah. would she really, if she could do it again? I but hope then the same with Billy Crystal, I suppose. He mm. he played this kind of wisecracking role all the way through his career, and he? he didn't sort of branch out mm. like Robin Williams did or someone like that. Uh, he was usually kind of a variation on Harry, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm going to bring you back to Sleepless in Seattle that you mentioned there. I don't think I've ever seen that. Should I watch it? Yes. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, I only saw it once a long time ago, and... I think it's definitely more more towards the slushy. It's got some very emo- it's got a very emotional undercurrent because it is about a widowed mm-hmm. father. I can take that. So it's a very emotional undercurrent. So if you if you get caught up in that, it can be quite upsetting. Okay, well, I'm, I'm about to go into my own. I've declared this on Twitter uh, for the uh, the three people that cared on there. Uh, I'm about to go into my own Tom Hanks season. Oh, oh nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I watched uh, Saving Private, Private, Private Ryan recently. And um, also, I heard him interview. We we talked about Kermode and Mayo a bit back, and I heard him interviewed on there recently. He just think, well, okay, now's the time. To, and I also, he shares my birthday. Remember that he shares mine, not I share his. <laughs> and <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go into that. So, um, at some point, uh, we we may stretch away from just how wonderful this film is. Uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, but later, Andy is uh, going to be looking at some of the best one-line wonders in movies. And Rachel considers the unrealistic expectations rom-coms can create. And that's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning to buy anything from Amazon, if you do that via the links on our website, we'll get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Billy Crystal's autobiography, Still Fallenham. Where I've been, where I'm going, and where the hell are my keys? You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. 
we get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help fund producer Johnny's lifelong dream of building a giant Lego model of himself (laughs) (laughs) called Big Lego Johnny. (laughs) Now, back to the show. Do it to me, Sheldon. You're an animal, Sheldon. Ride me, big Sheldon. Hey, hey, welcome back to Spoiler, where we are talking about all of the whole of the plot of When Harry Met Sally. But when you think of When Harry Met Sally, the chances are one particular line pops into your head. A line which has been repeated and parodied to the point of becoming perhaps more famous than the movie itself, despite being delivered by a virtually unknown actress playing an unnamed incidental character. Andy's been looking at this and other famous movie one-line wonders. Most women at one time or another have faked it. Well, they haven't faked it with me. How do you know? Because I know. Since the dawn of the sound era, cinema has been filled with great one-liner merchants. From Groucho Marx through Bob Hope and Woody Allen, the great wits of the silver screen have kept us chuckling right down the decades. But one of the most famous one-liners in film history was delivered by an old lady in her 70s with just five film credits to her name, who promptly retired from the business, leaving behind one of the most quoted movie lines ever. It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them, and most women at one time or another have done it, so use the math. You don't think that I can tell a difference? No. Get out of here. The lady was Estelle Reiner, the mother of When Harry Met Sally director Rob Reiner. And the line, delivered after Meg Ryan's Sally performs a very loud fake orgasm in a crowded restaurant, was... I'll have what she's having. It was the perfect punchline to a scene which would otherwise have been tricky to segue out of. And having delivered the line, Estelle's character vanishes and is never seen again. The trick of giving one of the biggest laughs of the film to a bystander on the fringes of the spotlight was a clever one, but it wasn't a new one. 1980s films in particular seem to have a fondness for this phenomenon, which I have dubbed the one-line wonder. It's a terrific rug-pulling thrill whenever one of these unexpected zingers emerges from the lips of a character to whom we have not previously paid any particular attention, and who will subsequently disappear from the film completely, like a comedian aware that they should exit after their biggest laugh. But I have a theory that audiences love one-line wonders so much because we see ourselves in them. When watching films with friends, who doesn't comment on the action or crack jokes about the characters? There are a few more satisfying things in life than those rare moments when you land a perfect joke and leave the room to peals of approving laughter. We are those one-line wonders, lingering on the outskirts of a film's world and trying to outdo the protagonists with our own witticisms. Because of the importance of an audience feeling this connection, One-line wonders are rarely portrayed as rich, successful, or drop-dead gorgeous, like the protagonists on whom they comment. They are the man in the street, the lady in the post office queue, or, on the occasions they are assigned jobs, usually a low-level cog in a world filled with high flyers. A great example can be found in Sidney Pollock's Tootsie, in which desperate actor Dustin Hoffman poses as a woman in order to win a role in a trashy daytime soap. During the screen test, the producer scrutinises the dragged-up Hoffman and says, I'd like to make her look a little more attractive. How far can you pull back? In a classic example of the one-line wonder phenomenon, we see a very brief shot of a tubby, middle-aged cameraman who replies, How do you feel about Cleveland? In a film featuring Dustin Hoffman, Bill Murray and Terry Garr, this man manages to steal the best line of the film in the time it takes to speak six words. His job as a cameraman is significant, 
not just because it puts him lower down the career ladder than the actors and producers he has to deal with on a daily basis, but because it immediately identifies him as a viewer like us. This man's job is to watch phony dramas unfold through a camera lens, and, like us, he comments on what he sees from the safety of this one remove. In this hilarious moment, he acknowledges a potential sticking point in the film's realism, that despite a great makeup job, Dustin Hoffman doesn't look particularly feminine, and in doing so, he allows the audience watching the film to relinquish these doubts. Someone within the world of the fiction on the screen thinks the same way we do, and this identification helps us to believe in it more readily. Sometimes, one-line wonders help us to vicariously lash out at life's frustrations. Unlike Tuts's relatively anonymous cameraman, who seems as unlikely to be directly affected by the action as those of us on the other side of the screen, one-line wonders can sometimes be visibly mistreated underlings, whose eventual opportunity to offer their two cents is a release for those who have felt similarly marginalised and debased by their own employers. Inside Marshall Seymour beats the heart of a little boy. Because Marshall Seymour is about to become his 11-year-old son, Charlie. Awesome! A wonderful example of this appears in Brian Gilbert's body swap comedy, Vice Versa, in which uptight executive Marshall Seymour, played by Judge Reinhold, switches places with his 11-year-old son, Charlie, played by Fred Savage. Forced to deal with the trials and tribulations of childhood for the second time... Oh my God! A newly prepubescent Marshall takes a limo ride, during which the driver is subjected to rude, demanding outbursts from what appears to be a precocious school kid. When he finally gets out of the car, Marshall barks at the driver as he hurries away. Watching the confident kid scurry off, a man leans in the car window and asks, Is he famous? The driver replies, You will be! I'm gonna kill him! Occasionally, a one-line wonder would be used not as a surrogate for the audience, but as an excuse to momentarily switch tone. The tonal change would last only as long as the cameo, thereby allowing for a jarringly funny but ultimately undisruptive interlude. An example of this rare variation appears in Joe Dante's sci-fi comedy Inner Space, which for the most part is a family-friendly slapstick farce about the wimpy Jack Putter, played by Martin Short, whose life is transformed when he inadvertently has a miniaturised pod containing pilot and experimental test subject Tuck Pendleton, played by Dennis Quaid, injected into his body. As the only one able to hear and converse with Pendleton, Putter holds a conversation with him while using a urinal. I hate this. Why can't we just tell her the truth? She might even believe us. No. Besides, it's humiliating being this small. What's so bad about being small? During their conversation, a man wanders into the toilet and mistakenly believes that Putter is talking to a part of his own anatomy. He sidles up to him and advises, Play with it, pal. Don't talk to it. By giving this incongruously dirty joke to a man who spends only seconds on the screen, Inner Space gets away with a brief, amusing gear change. Unlike other one-line wonders, the audience feels no connection with this man, since our prior knowledge of the plot allows us information to which he has no access, the absence of which leads to the comic misunderstanding. Also, far from an unrecognisable face, Dante cast actor Kenneth Toby in this role, a B-movie and TV veteran who is just the right level of recognisable for audiences to get the impression he's wandered in from another movie, bringing with him an air of crudeness which walks out of the film the moment Toby walks out of the room. Perhaps one of the most effective one-line wonders in terms of audience identification is Big Al, the gas station attendant. And that must be Big Al! 
<laughs> in Randall Fleiss' sci-fi adventure, Flight of the Navigator. Played by the wonderfully named Rusty Pouch, Big Al's role consists of one of the longest screen silences ever handed to a bit part player, as 12-year-old David, played by Joey Kramer, arrives at his gas station in a large spaceship. David asks Big Al if he can Hi, borrow some can change to call his parents. Al, rooted to the spot in disbelief, reaches into his pocket and hands him some coins, all the while staring in dumbstruck awe at the spaceship. Like cinema audiences everywhere, Al appreciates an impressive special effect, and the whole time the spaceship is there, he does not tear his gaze away. While David is making his call, a young family pull into the station, and, assuming the spaceship is a local attraction, the kids play on its steps, while the father attempts in vain to engage Al in conversation about the construction of such a magnificent piece of artwork. How long did it take to put something like that together? Okay, we'll just take a look around ourselves. Eventually, David returns and boards the spaceship, taking off to the amazement of the family. At this point, Al finally breaks his silence, informing everyone. He just said he wanted to phone home. This killer punchline is the ultimate confirmation of the kinship between audiences and one-line wonders. Just like us, Big Al likes to stare at spaceships. Just like us, Big Al loves movies. At the very least, we know he saw E.T., which, given Flight of the Navigator's likely fanbase, is safe to assume most people watching have as well. This deceptively simple cinematic trick identifies its target audience and then draws them into the film's world by placing elements they recognise from their everyday lives and their own personalities beside fantastical effects and sexy stars that could only exist in the world of the movies. It's all very well to present your audience with a world of wonderment, but without something for them to grab onto, that particular soap bubble could easily drift away. One Line Wonders are one way of grounding the dream ship to the extent that we can all jump aboard, safe in the knowledge that there are people we recognise in among the Ewoks, laser guns, bikini-clad babes and muscle-bound action men we so enjoy watching, but, in truth, would rather remain at one remove from. That way we can be sure of getting all the best lines. Well, hey, thanks for that. Andy, and I need to stop saying, well, hey. Uh, it's turning me into the kind of presenter I don't necessarily want to be. Uh, very soon we'll be opening supermarkets on a Saturday morning. Um, the, I mean, the, the trivia on this film, you know, we, are, I, we love the trivia on IMDb. Now, my favourite, and, and I realise I'm, I'm, I'm coming back into the programme here completely off tangents, but, you know, we, we, we want to stop it being a complete loving. But my favourite is the footage of Harry and Jess at the New York Giants game was taken from when the team played the Detroit Lions on October the 16th, 1988. <laughs> the Giants won 30-10. <laughs> That's really Lovely. important to some people. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Now, there's been a stage version of this. Yes, indeed, um, there has. And Molly Ringwald got to be Sally yeah, in the oh, end. Really? <laughs> Eventually she got to yeah. be... Would you want to see this on a stage? Do you want to see anything on a stage? I love stage. Oh. It, I do think it would lend itself to the theatre because it doesn't need any grand yeah. landscapes or any major visual effects. <laughs> um, I mean, it is just a series or could be a series of little monologues and, you know, dialogues and things. And it's, yeah, I can see that working on stage if you get the right people, which would be my would be my one issue, I think. Yeah. Luke, yeah. Luke Perry was one of the first actors, wasn't he? Yeah, see, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm really not sure about that. I'm definitely not sure. Although I've only ever already seen him in Beverly Hills 90210, yeah, so that's probably not the best, the best audition tape for me. <laughs> I can more see um, Alison Hannigan, 
who played Willow in Buffy. Did she do it? She oh. she played Sally. I can see that because she's ditzy. But they're still not who you want. They are not Meg and Billy. And I think that's who you want to see. So. I could imagine seeing the orgasm scene in the theatre would be quite powerful. Though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, when you watch it, you feel the kind of embarrassment. You feel Harry's embarrassment of being in that public place. Imagine like actually oh. being in the same room. <laughs> Watching it happen, you would, uh, and then obviously, like as an audience, you would almost want to shout back that, that yes. ending line as well, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, it's a big hit. But uh, yeah, well, there's that. The, the, the restaurant still runs, doesn't it? How many people do you think give that a go? Oh God, <laughs> loads! There is a plaque yeah. over the table and everything. Never going Imagine there. being a bit of a jaded <laughs> worker coming into oh. work and thinking, "How many orgasms I'm going to have to <laughs> suffer <laughs> through today?" <laughs> no, yeah, and you know good. you're jaded when you're thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> I did hear an, an interesting snippet about the orgasm scene, which I hadn't heard before, which was that um, when Meg Ryan did the first take, um, Rob Ryan said it wasn't good enough. So he demonstrated to her how he wanted it. Gosh. And Billy Crystal described it. And I was like, that sounds off. <laughs> but after that, she was able to do the whole thing. That but was, yes, Rob Reiner showed her how to do it. It was quite, a, it, that was like a good example of sort of the collaborative effort as well, wasn't it? Because mm. that wasn't a, a written scene, was it? No. And I think this was something where they said, we need a Sally scene because it's getting a bit Harry orientated. Mm. And then they said, let's put in a scene about the female orgasm. And then Meg Ryan came up with the idea of why don't I just do one? Mm. And then Billy Crystal came up with that final line. So yeah. it was a, all like it came together beautifully I think. but one thing that struck me about the orgasm scene uh, this time around watching it is hang on a minute how many times are people going to say the O word here <laughs> <laughs> oh God, don't be prudeful <laughs> <laughs> like we say it's a sophisticated adult audience Paul. We're, we're, we're good <laughs> you see um, I, I don't want to underest- underestimate the audience I just think about myself listening <laughs> I'd, I'd be giggling um, I think it's it's an example of the brilliant character development in this film because when you see at the beginning of this film Sally would never have done that and in any other film like nowadays when they do romantic comedies how you see the characters at the beginning is how they're going to be you go here's your stock type she's the uptight one he's the sort of laid back chauvinist and they're going to be like that throughout the entire thing and the character development, and this is so good, I mean, you quickly have these two jumps at five years and you can see how they change in those mm. in those five years. And then when they finally start to forge this friendship, you can see how they're influencing each other. And I think it's Harry's influence on her allows her to do that. And she, mm. she loosens up and she becomes able to mess around in that way and do something like that. I mean, mm. it sounds like a crude analogy, but... She, she's able to do the orgasm in public because she's she's got a bit of Harry in her at that <laughs> yeah. point. Oh dear. oh dear, that's unfortunate. <laughs> now, while the course of true love doesn't run entirely smoothly in When Harry Met Sally, like most Hollywood romantic comedies, it all turns out right in the end. But do rom-coms create unrealistic expectations which real life can't hope to match? Rachel has been finding out more. There's a movement on social media entitled something like I blame Disney for my high expectations in love. Though I see what they're getting at, and I empathise. I had a massive crush on Prince Eric when I was in my teens. I don't blame Disney for my continuing hopeless romantic state. I blame the rom-com. As fly 
bright and dreamy as I was as a teenager, I did manage to grasp the fact that Disney was fairy tale, ridiculously high standards in possibly small wastes, and happy endings that could only exist in once upon a time land where the mice sang and the bluebirds made dressings. But rom-coms, or rom-cons as I have dubbed them, are set largely in present day in recognisable settings in familiar situations. The characters talk like we do, move like we do, even eat and drink like we do. But somehow they have these amazing fairy tale relationships that are made to seem as real and authentic as the dripping tap in your bathroom. Consequently, we begin to imagine that somehow this ideal is attainable, possible, maybe even probable. We feel strongly that the right person will stop at nothing to woo us, and many of us believe in, and so wait for, the mythical one. Chasing after rainbows, and we never find one of my all-time favourite rom-coms. You see, even though they've messed up my love life, I still adore them. The lesser-known Only You, starring Robert Downey Jr. and the beautiful Marissa Tomei. In it, Marissa plays a woman called Faith, I didn't say it was subtle, who runs off to Italy a few days before her wedding, as she believes her destined partner to be heading there. The whole plot is ridiculous, but oh so seductive. Gorgeous Italian landscapes, beautiful leads, exquisite music, and the fully enforced idea of the one. You have a good job? Of course. Now, who are you? I'm sorry, Peter, Faith. We're just, we're just friends. It's okay. He's available. See, she thinks that you two are meant to be. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only problem is, I guess, me, because I'm in love with her. I love her more than she'll ever know. I saw this when I was 16 years old, and that was it. My love life had to be this or nothing. Hmm, that was a decision I would come to regret. Another firm favourite, While You Were Sleeping, always hits me fully in the feels too. This time there's an element of Cinderella about it as well. Sandra Bullock's train ticket seller, while still obviously beautiful, Sandra Bullock for heaven's sake, is an orphan, somewhat dowdy, and quite honestly a bit of a strange one considering her behaviour at the start of the film. Nevertheless, she manages by the end of the film to acquire the heart of a super lovely Bill Pullman and gains a whole new family. I need to ask you a question. Get down on your knee. It's more romantic. How can we retain our sensible heads in love when this is what we aspire to? Marry me. Yeah. I love you. I love you back. I remember feeling a genuine physical pull of yearning when I saw Colin Firth envelop Renny Zellweger in his warm winter coat and kiss her at the end of the first Bridget Jones film. Wait a minute. The ending of Peter Weir's green card had a similar effect on me, as Gerard Depardieu and Andy McDowell, the most unlikely film couple ever, realised their deep love for each other and ran into each other's arms in a mixture of giddy excitement and despair at their impending separation. I read the Bible today. Now, Mr. Parade. And the letters will always say the same thing. When are you coming, Sherry? <gasps> Sometimes the need for that fairy tale-esque and all-encompassing love is breathtaking. But still, I go back for more, knowing that it will simultaneously enthrall me and make my heart ache. However, there are some who are immune to all this and see through it quite easily. The insightful comedy actress and writer Mindy Kaling once said, I simply regard romantic comedies as a subgenre of sci-fi, in which the world created therein has different rules than my regular human world. 
there is no difference between Ripley from Alien and any Catherine Heigl character. The strangest thing is that much as I blame these rom-coms for my unrealistic expectations and love, I wouldn't change them. Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset and Before Midnight proved that to me. Before Sunrise is one of my favourite films of all time. I want to keep talking to you, you know? I have no idea what your situation is, but, uh, but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Yeah, right. Well, great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. As Jesse and Celine, played by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, walk through Vienna over the course of one evening, they not only fall in love with each other, we fall in love with them too. It feels more real than other romances. They talk about both interesting and inane things. They say daft things. They stumble. They flirt. They're authentic. And because it's virtually real time, we live it with them. When they decide to part the morning after the most wonderful night of their young lives, vowing to meet up again at a certain time and place, we share their hope that it works out for them, and for many of us, we felt sure it would. So, uh, track nine, six months from now, at six o'clock at night. December. We find out in Before Sunset that they missed their date for reasons we later discover, but they managed to meet again, ten years later, this time in Paris, and have just over an hour to rekindle their love for one another. And rekindled it is. Why weren't you there in Vienna? I told you why. Well, I know why, I just... I wish you would have been. Our lives might have been so much different. Maybe not. Maybe we would have hated each other eventually. You know, maybe we're... We're only good at brief encounters walking around in European cities in warm climate. Despite the continuing authenticity of their conversation, they talk about marriage and children, breakdown of other relationships. There is something magical about these two. But surely what they have is more real than your usual romance. And surely this time it could maybe be attainable for the rest of us? The sting in the tail came when Before Midnight was released. A continuation of the story another ten years on, and this time Jesse and Celine are married with twin girls. But oh dear, there's trouble in paradise. First love, do you even, even remember who it was? Uh, yeah, I do, it was you. Like, I'm the first woman you've ever fell in love yeah, with? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I don't the think first so. one I felt truly connected to, sure, okay. when I wasn't your first love. No, of course not. This time the creators went for a truly authentic story, with real problems and real arguments. It was entirely believable, but utterly heartbreaking. You're unhappy, you blame it on the other person. Resentment grows, everything slowly rot, and you break you're up. You're just That's doing it. this to shut me up. Not okay. at all. No, you Not are. at all. That's what you're doing. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, I'm actually surprised we lasted this long. Oh, okay, okay. So okay. here comes I. We're on parallel tracks for a while, but now tracks have crossed, and I'm going west, and you're going east. For those of us who had followed their romance over 20 years, we found our faith in love rocked, and I didn't like it. Not one bit. So give me the improbable you've got mail, the ridiculous 27 dresses, my biggest guilty pleasure, and the tomboy endorsing some kind of wonderful, and make them bigger and better than real life ever could be. You can keep your realism for the Oscar contenders. Life is harsh enough. I'll let my heart take its respite in the films of Richard Curtis and Nora Ephron, and in the knee-trembling kisses between two lovers who have fought impossible odds to be together. Take that, Mr Linklater. Well, thanks for that, Rachel. Yeah, I mean, I think I had a, I had a phase... And the reason I think this VHS ended up on my shelf as a bought one, not from down the uh, the video shop, 
was because I think I did go, I went through a phase in my early 20s of watching this kind of film, rom-coms. And I suppose I was trying, as I look back now, I'm analysing this, right? At the time, it would have been, you know, there wouldn't have been a second thought in my head about anything that was going on. But as I look back now, I think I was probably looking for for the tips from charismatic male lead roles like Billy Crystal, you know, as you know, as to as to try how to attract uh, <laughs> a member a member of the opposite sex, and uh, yeah, you know, I'd I'd have been I'd have been looking at this and then gone off and tried too hard somewhere <laughs> and failed and ended up like Morrissey. <laughs> And that, what's that ne- song? Never take tips from Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> Go home when you're crying, you want to die, etc., <laughs> etc. Et I mean, that was like every Saturday night in my life Aww. for a long time. I don't, I don't think I cried really. I just I fell asleep on the stairs. Anyway, 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 anyway. again, it's turned into a therapy session, hasn't it? Flipping heck. Um, now, at some point, some chump's going to come along and remake this, aren't they? Oh, God, they better not. <laughs> oh, they'd better uh, not. I don't think they will, though. No. I think where the romantic comedy has gone, that people are almost, they wouldn't take something that's this focused on the minutiae of of relationships. And they they just want this this thing, like something like a Long Came Polly, where <laughs> you just get two types, the, the sort of ditzy girl next door and the uptight guy. You have a few kind of set pieces where he ruins a toilet and then they go off hand in hand. <laughs> uh, it just follows this this really basic kind of uh, structure where they get together at the beginning, they have a few like sort of dates, then like at about the end of the second act, they have some sort of misunderstanding, a big argument, mm-hmm. and then they reconcile at the end. And that's kind of become the structure, hasn't it? Mm. And I think that, that Hollywood is so married to that kind of structure that... If someone presented the idea of remaking this, they would go, well, before we before we go towards the end and the ending of what we think may may have happened next. Before we get to the end, can I just ask if anyone has any negative points of this film? Because I've got one. Um. <laughs> Is it that uh, so uh, they've been uh, intimate? They've had an intimate relationship after she's called him over to the flat. And the morning after that before, she's all snuggly wuggly. And uh, I did just say that. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's not that bothered. And I thought, well, <gasps> yes. but at that point, I suppose I'm more, you know, the, you, you perhaps don't always believe that he believes what he's saying about being the friend thing. You know, it's like even when they go back to that brilliant scene where they're doing the Mexican wave and he's telling his friend <laughs> and they're doing that, you know, what just a, a, what a, a fantastic scene that was. You know, they're talking about thing, you know, matters of the heart between two men and every now and then. And they get up to do a Mexican wave. It's just you know, it's, 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 it's so well shot. So, and of course, as we know, the the, the score was thirty <laughs> ten. Um, uh, so yeah, for me, I'd, I'd written that down. But you know, it's like I said earlier, I, 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 it's being picky, I suppose. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm being picky because it's nothing so sort of entrenched in the plot. It's just one joke, which I don't know if it was in the script. It sounds to me like a Billy Crystal improvisation. Uh, it's the joke he makes about the Ethiopian restaurant, and it really sticks oh, yeah. in my yeah, throat yeah, every yeah. time I see it. No, you about, it, yeah. I didn't even know they had food in Ethiopia. I load up two empty plates and we'll go. And it feels, I, c- I could buy it as kind of uh, a realistic portrayal of how when you're with someone you're comfortable with, maybe you'll say something more on PC when no one else mm. is listening. But the way it's used, it's used in this example where they're talking about bad dates they've had. And he uses this joke as an example of how she didn't get him. And mm. Uh, mm. Sally laughs out loud at it. Mm. 
and during the time when he says it, there's, they're in this huge, like, New York apartment. They're unrolling this big carpet in it. And it feels very much to me like this sort of two privileged middle-class people mocking the poorest people in the world. Mm. This mm. is just my liberal guilt. But it, it, every time, this that bit just irks yeah, me. I totally get that. I had a similar ooh, moment when that happened. I didn't actually go as far as you was to write it down and think, oh, oh, it's a flaw. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> well, but I was I'd, looking I'd... quite hard for flaws. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Although, no, I totally get that, actually. No, yeah, but that's... overlooking things, it's quite funny because I was looking at the, and I think this happens a lot in America where they introduce people by their full name. So they go, oh, here's, <laughs> here's Sally Albright. Here, you know, meet Harry Burns. You wouldn't, you know, if we were at a party, so, oh, oh, yeah, this is Rachel and uh, Andy over here. Wouldn't, you would say that, wouldn't you? You wouldn't yeah. say, yeah. this is Rachel Burnett. Rachel Burnett, meet Andy Goulding. Andy Goulding, meet Rachel Burnett. <laughs> it wouldn't, you know, and, and that's obvious, but it just yeah, that stuck with me for heaven knows what reason. <laughs> I don't know. But are they are they are they still together? We talk about the ending now. I mean, obviously they they got together, and I think I don't know if you've all read the same things I have. Uh, there was an original version where they didn't get together, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I think we we I've maybe asked this question to you before more than once over four series of this program now, uh, where you sort of say, well, you know, did they chicken out by putting them together? Would it have been a braver choice for them not to be together? Well, I, I like the reason that it was changed is because obviously it was all based around Rob Reiner's single mandem after mm-hmm. his divorce. Yeah. And um, they were absolutely gearing towards them not being together at the end. That was what the ending was going to be. But then uh, Mr. Reiner met his now wife on the set of When Harry Met Sally, fell in love and was all loved up and thought, <laughs> oh, they could be together at the end. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's so sweet that his belief in love sort of went, they could be together. And... Um, I think it could have gone either way. I think, yeah, you know, the cynic in me goes, yeah, come on. They've been friends for (laughs) 12 years and a bit, but they've been through so much and why not? Screw it. (laughs) Yeah, I I think I think it would work have worked just as well either way. So I don't think it's detrimental that they get together. I think what's important to me is, is the way that it's done in that it's it's small scale in keeping with everything in this film. So, yeah, he gives her a little speech, but. It's it's their moment. They're in. There's not like a horrible bit where everyone's listening and they all applaud. Like you get in, <laughs> or, uh, or some ending where now this is something that happens in so many rom coms that I can't stand. Is that not only do they have to get together, but they have to end it on a tropical beach somewhere, drinking like drinks with little umbrellas, and it's as if finding your perfect partner is not reward enough. That you have to have some kind of image of your financial status or your your success and it just i think no you don't need they don't need to be on a beach walking away they can they can be just and with them and hanging out sally they are they're just in their natural surroundings and that's that's victory enough and that's how it should be that that is the reward at the end when my my wife gets home from work every night the first thing I do to greet, I don't like immediately go, oh, how was your day or anything like that. Almost involuntarily, the moment that I hear that the door go, I go, hooray! <laughs> and that's the first thing she hears, she hears when I come in. And it's because I feel like Aww. every time she comes home at the end of the day, I feel like I've won a prize. It's like, <laughs> here, it's 15 hours for you together. Yeah, you're going to be unconscious for some of it, but you're going to be next to each other for that. And that's that for me is is the reward and that's all you should need at the end of this film you're together you found happiness you found love perfect yeah okay just uh, writing tips <laughs> cheer when <laughs> wife 
gets home. <laughs> okay, thanks, Andy. Every day's a school day, right? Uh, are they still together? Is a, is a question I, I, I asked earlier, but no one paid attention to because I hid it inside eight other questions. Uh, are they still together? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And not only that, I think that their friends still together as well. That's yes. quite a nicely little drawn yeah. relationship. I yeah, think. I like and that. Especially, I mean, that poor woman throughout two thirds of the film, he's never going to leave his wife. It's like, nobody thinks he's going to leave his wife. And I love that, that delusional kind of, you know, she just held on to it for so long. And then when she meets the right person, bang, that's it, over. Yeah. And yes, they're together still as well, yeah. in my head, for sure. Mm. Mm. So as we get to that and a nice little segue in here, when we come to the rating, um, as if we need to ask, but I'm going to go through the, uh, the, the process anyway. Um, is it... And I'll have what she's having. <laughs> or is it a wagon wheel coffee table? <laughs> uh, which is not, sadly, made out of wagon wheels, but is actually <laughs> the wagon wheel, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, but the, it, well, no, I've thought about this. I've put too much thought into this. It'd melt, wouldn't it, when you put your coffee down on That's it? True. Um, <laughs> That's true. Um, it's definitely out of what she's having. Oh Maybe. yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you see, you get, it was such a good rating that way. You know, <laughs> early, early on in this series, I, you know, I got a bit. I thought oh, I can't think of these things anymore, uh, and then then I thought, oh, wagon wheel table, and then I thought, well, you can actually buy those, you know. Really? Wow. <laughs> and other forms of tables that they just with little wagon wheels on the side of them that look like little wagons go for about £700. <laughs> Investment. Oh. Um, I need to just thank this film as well for something that there's a reason why this is in my top ten of, of all time. It's not just because it's a brilliant film, but it's also because this is the film that introduced me to jazz. Ah. Um, and 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 get into soundtracks as well. Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, Harry Connick Jr. I was about I... I was about to do the outro. Get into Andy's Sorry. poems. Just, I thought <laughs> I we have might get to it. Get that out there. <laughs> but I was twelve years old when this film came out. I was probably thirteen, fourteen when I watched it for the first time, and it opens with Harry Connick playing that piano. And I was like, "What is this? This is awesome." <laughs> There's no vocals. It's just it had to be you just with the piano, and um, loved it. Loved the soundtrack. Thought it was amazing. Bought it obviously, on tape, and um, got me into jazz, got me into Harry Connick. So thank you, When Harry Met Sally, for introducing me to jazz. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hang on a second, one second. Sound track. Right, I've written it down, so I've made the decision to look that up now. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Well, there we go. Um, if, you've, if you've listened to this programme, uh, and you, you will have watched When Harry Met Sally, and we hope you have, and we all, I think, sincerely hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, if you didn't, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, people say at this point, get in touch and tell don't, don't bother. <laughs> None of us. We don't want to hear that. And uh, so, great stuff. Uh, that's the end of another series. So, um, thanks to everyone. Thanks to, to Johnny Behind the Glass. It's funny, his, his actual name is Johnny Hoare, not being Johnny Behind the Glass. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, for all your hard work, uh, as always, produced a, a wonderful series. Thanks to, uh, to Rachel and Andy for putting in so much hard work and uh, putting up with me. And uh, the same goes for you too, dear listener. Uh, we'll leave you, as always, with the genial Andy Goulding. Although I've often been called unromantic in my time, I hold real love in high regard as something quite sublime. Defining what love really is can be a tad contentious, but it's fascinated me since when I first became pretentious. But much as I adore love in its undiluted state, I can't help feeling angry when I hear folks talk of fate, and how some cosmic force that we can never understand thought they were so important that it reached in to lend a hand. To scoff at fate and destiny can make you seem cold-hearted, but don't be judging me just yet, I'm only getting started. 
I'm all for celebration of a great love that's enduring, but talk of how it's preordained is really getting boring. The truth is, people die alone and loveless every day. Now what on earth did they do that kept destiny at bay? If outside forces govern life's great comedy, then why do some folks get the happy end and some the custard pie? Love is not a mystery we'll solve any time soon. I don't claim I'm an expert, but Nora Mills and Boone. And if we must impose ideas on something so elusive, the least that we could do is make the damn thing all-inclusive. For in a world beset by war, starvation and disease, only a vapid narcissist could possibly conceive a supreme force or being as all-powerful as fate, with nought to do but keep our Rolodexes up to date. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher, with additional music from the When Harry Met Sally soundtrack. It had to be you. It had to be you. I wandered around and finally found the somebody who... If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show, or writing us a nice review on iTunes. Spoiler team are taking a bit of a break now, but we'll be back soon when, amongst other things, we'll be taking a look at Bruce Willis's 1988 action movie, Die Hard. Welcome to the party, pal! If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful Cathedral City of Lincoln. I like it. It works. It says home to me. David, it had to be you. Wonderful you. Had to be you.